Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Today, I'll be talking with Sheila Olmsted, a professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, a university fellow at RFF, and a senior fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana. She spent time at the Council of Economic Advisors during the transition from the Obama to Trump administrations and has been working on a report commissioned by the External Environmental Economics Advisory Committee, or EAC, that will be the subject of our conversation today. Just so that our listeners know, uh, the EEAC is an independent organization dedicated to providing up-to-date, nonpartisan advice on the state of economic science as it relates to the U.S. EPA's programs. So as our regular listeners may recall, a few months back, I discussed an EEAC report with co-authors Mary Evans and Matt Cotchen, and that report was on the Mercury and Air Toxic Standards, or MATS, rule. This week, Sheila and I will be talking about a newly released report commissioned by the EEAC, and this time on the 2015 Clean Water Rule and its eventual replacement, the Navigable Waters Protection Rule. As in that previous episode, we're going to cover what the rules are all about, how they've shifted under changing administrations, and the author's views on how to improve the economic analysis underpinning the development and finalization of the rules. Stay with us. Hi, Sheila. Welcome to Resources Radio. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Hi, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So let me start by asking you to tell our audience about your own background, including, I, I understand that you have a particular interest in water economics, so very apropos that you would be a leader of this report. And maybe you could also just tell us a little bit more about or remind us about the genesis of the EEAC itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's true. I, I do. I, <laughs> I can't hide it. I do have an interest in water <laughs> economics, <laughs> which is no kind of unusual. That, Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't probably talked to a lot of us um, on resources radio or elsewhere. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I'm an economist by training um, and I, I work on a lot of things, but my favorite projects um, have always been those that focus on water resource management in some way that includes water pollution and um, water demand and water conservation and those kinds of things. And I got interested in those ideas and challenges. Actually, when I was a master's student here in Texas, I'm at the University of Texas at Austin, um, and I started working on a project where um, I was trying to evaluate the um, the water infrastructure needs of a bunch of communities, you know, a thousand or more communities in the Texas border region that didn't have access to um, water and wastewater service. Uh, and that just kind of fascinated me that, wow, we still have, you know, some really, really egregious um you know, challenges in this sector and um, and especially for lower income households. And that was a, a surprise to me in my 20s. And I started working on that and then just kind of got hooked and um, and navigated toward a lot of other water issues over the rest of my career. Um, and then a little about the, the EEAC. Um, the Environmental Protection Agency, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, has always had a science advisory board. And as part of that science advisory board for decades, um, they had a standing subcommittee, an environmental economic subcommittee. And, um, you know, that committee had a lot of jobs. They did things like draft and then revise and keep up to date EPA's guidelines for preparing economic analysis. Um, So that's an important role that it played. Um, It also, you know, reviewed as kind of what we're doing here in the report that we'll talk about today, um, individual benefit cost analyses that were done by the agency um, over time for major 
uh, environmental rules that had to do with air pollution or water pollution or, uh, or other environmental problems. And the Trump administration, uh, first administrator, Scott Pruitt of the EPA, um, dissolved that standing subcommittee. Uh, and so the EAC as it exists now is sort of a, it's a foundation funded, you know, completely independent. It's not part of EPA anymore, but they are trying to play this same role of, you know, providing this objective analysis of um, both kind of best practices and also um, independent review of individual rules that EPA is promulgating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. That's really helpful background to sort of set the stage for the main focus of our conversation, which is on this latest report uh, commissioned by the EAC, and which, as I mentioned, is focused on the clean water rule and its eventual replacement, the navigable waters protection rule. So these are lots of words that I have never strung together in that order before, but I am oh, excited wait till to talk I get about started. them now. Yeah, it's great. Um, so I probably should start with some background on those rules as well, uh, both for myself and for our audience. Sure. So can you tell us just kind of about the rules, both in yeah. terms of the timeline and then the areas of controversy? Absolutely. And, you know, I think compared to some of the air quality concerns that that, um, folks have been talking about recently on Resources Radio, I think we have to go back a little further than, you know, the typical conversation to think about what these changes have meant and where they came from and why Mm -hmm. they're important. And so I'll start with, you know, the Clean Water Act is the the kind of main federal environmental statute in the United States that, um, you know, ensures, you know, the, the Um, you know, sort of integrity of U.S. waters. And that was passed in 1972. And it was passed by the U.S. Congress, which required overriding a veto by then President Nixon. And, you know, you sort of think about what was going on in the early 1970s. Um, People think about events like the 1969 Cuyahoga River fire, which was prominently covered by the media, and other kinds of events like that um, are widely credited for, you know, raising public awareness of the damages from water pollution. And so this was a time of you know, I would say fairly widespread support for a muscular federal role in environmental policy. We had the Clean Air Act in 1970, the EPA is created in 1970, Clean Water Act 1972, Endangered Species Act 1973. So the challenge has been over time for the Clean Water Act that the definition of, you know, which waters fall under the umbrella of the Clean Water Act has always been a little bit fuzzy. Um, So in the statute itself, you know, back in the 70s, it referred to the, quote, waters of the United States. And the acronym for that is WOTUS, W-O-T-U-S. So often, you know, rules that have to do with the CWA jurisdiction are, you know, referred to using that acronym. And the idea is, you know, what is the water of the United States? What is a water that's subject to federal CWA jurisdiction? That has been controversial almost since the start. And so what we see is after 72, you've got new agency regulations in 1977, 1980, 1982, 86, 88, always trying to kind of do a better and clearer job of defining this, um, you know, what, you know, which waters are within the scope and which ones are not. Um, and, you know, I would should say that for at least some parts of the Clean Water Act, it's not just the EPA, but also the Army Corps of Engineers that has to worry about this. And so by the early 1980s, EPA and the Corps had a, a formal joint definition of waters of the United States or, or WOTUS, but that had been challenged and continued to be challenged in several high-profile wetlands cases that eventually reached the U.S. Supreme Court. So you had cases like that in 1985, 2001, 2006, and now we're getting closer in time to today. 
And basically, in those disputes, you know, the two sides were kind of the U.S. federal government, the agencies like EPA and Army Corps saying, I think, you know, this particular wetland or pond or stream that you might affect in your land development project or your farm or your kind of municipal agency, right, intent to do something with a piece of land, you know, the government, you know, would, would be saying, we think this falls you know, under the Clean Water Act's jurisdiction, and then the private actor or public actor that was suing the federal government would be arguing the opposite, right? So land developers, for example, would be saying, hey, there's this wetland that's on my private property, and I don't think that falls within the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act. Um, and so, you know, those cases kind of went both ways. Um, you know, there's a, a couple important ones that'll come up during our conversation, I think, um, I think today. But the basic idea is that in 2015, the Obama administration, through this rule that you mentioned, the Clean Water Rule, sought to standardize this, um, you know, kind of the characteristics of water bodies that would be subject to a variety of Clean Water Act regulations. And so that was the, the initial kind of purpose of that 2015 rule. Um, there was, you know, like all major rules uh, under the, you know, U.S. federal um, regulations, that it had to go through a, a rigorous benefit cost analysis. And in this case, that was done by both the EPA and the Army Corps jointly. Um, and so that was passed. Um, but like a lot of these WOTUS questions, it was immediately litigated. And so by the time it was the end of the Obama administration, that rule had been stayed in just over half of the U.S. states and then was in place in the other half. And so it was very much in limbo, right? So, and then we had a very significant change, a kind of 180 degree turn in terms of environmental policy when the Obama administration leaves office and the Trump administration comes in. And very quickly by, you know, January, February of, of 2017, um, the Trump administration had issued an executive order announcing its plan to repeal the clean water rule and to replace it with another rule. Um, and that kicked off the agency's work over the past three years, which is what we're assessing in, um, you know, in this report, both the repeal of the clean water rule first, that officially happened in 2019, although it took, you know, sort of had fits and starts before that, um, and then the navigable waters protection rule, which became effective this year in June, just a few months ago. Um, and again, with all of that, there's multiple kind of competing economic analyses, um, you know, that were done by the agencies in that whole process. And the bottom line in terms of, you know, what the the, the repeal and the replacement means is that the Navigable Waters Protection Act, the Trump rule, relative to the Clean Water Rule, the Obama rule, narrows the scope of the Clean Water Act. It sort of takes waters that would formally have, you know, have been considered WOTUS, right, waters of the United States, those subject to Clean Water Act jurisdiction under the 2015 rule, and it removes the, that protection from, from those waters. And best estimates that we have suggest that it removes about one half of U.S. wetlands from federal protection and about 18% of U.S. streams. And the numbers for streams are much higher in the arid west, where most or many at least um, streams are what you know what the rule would call intermittent or ephemeral they don't flow all the time um, so it's up to about 35 percent just over a third of streams in the arid west are thought to be removed from federal protection now under the new navigable waters protection rule okay and Sheila can, let me just ask one thing about what protection means in this case too is that is it about quality and measures of quality? Is it about quantity and use? It's How, a great question. Scope? Yeah, so it's a great question. So this is primarily focused on quality, although okay. again, the, the, you know that the two are related. Um, but there are a lot of different things that the Clean Water Act regulates. The most important one, and the one where we'll spend most of our time talking today, has to do with what. Uh, sort of land developers, farmers, and so on are allowed to do with respect to wetlands. 
and those that kind of process, the, the sort of wetlands regulatory program, is falls under Section 404 of the Clean Water Act, and that is the section that requires you know those kinds of actors, land developers, farmers, construction firms, and so on, to acquire a permit to dredge and fill wetlands, right? So if you have you know kind of a swampy you know kind of area in your property that you're trying to develop, if you decide well what we want to do is we want to fill that, right? Bring it up to you know the grade of the rest of the um, of the property, dry it out, and and build some stuff there or grow some crops or something like that um, you need a permit to do that and um, and so that's one really important piece right those kinds of activities are regulated but other things you know that are you know pretty straightforward would be things like you know if you want a permit to emit you know pollution from a, a pipe right into um, receiving waters you know if those waters are considered part of the Clean Water Act then you need a permit to do that um, under a different section of the Clean Water Act if they're not uh, falling under federal jurisdiction, then the only way you would need a permit to do that, right, that is anyone regulating uh, what it is that you do uh, and emit through that pipe, would be if states then step in um, and, and assert some jurisdiction over those waters. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. That's that's very helpful context, too. It sounds like the legal challenges, by and large, these sort of back and forth legal challenges, have been largely based on what this definition of WOTUS is, which that's waters right. are covered. Okay. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. Yeah, that's right. I guess the only exception I would say is that now, in the case of the current litigation, so you know, not surprisingly, given the litigious history of the of this yeah. particular idea, um, even the navigable waters protection rule, the new rule, um, that is also now being challenged in the courts by several states. For example, it's stayed in the state of Colorado right now, and it's uncertain, right, what the uh, the new Biden administration would actually uh, do to to make any changes. But in any case. Um, that one, a lot of the objections, again, right, the question as to what waters, you know, belong where, that's still the main question. But a lot of the legal challenges have to do with the economic analyses that we're we're going to be talking about um, today in the sense that, right, states that are suing are saying, hey, you've done this analysis poorly. It doesn't incorporate things that we think are important. And so that kind of challenge falls under um, federal administrative law, the Administrative Procedures Act, which says that agency regulations can't be what, you know, quote, arbitrary and capricious, right? And so if if, uh, the the rule and the economic analysis underlying the rule is thought to ignore important uh, aspects of science or economics, then that's the basis for some of these legal challenges today. Great. Okay. That's a good segue into, again, the kind of main focus on the economics. I hope we can come back to um, your sense of what the end game is here, but let's, let's <laughs> ha ha ha, hard question, I'm sure, but let's put that off towards the end. And yeah, let's talk about uh, the economics and the focus of this report. Sure. So you and your co-authors, mostly economists by training, um, took a close look at a number of the economic questions raised by the EPA Army Corps repeal and replacement rules. And so let's talk about three main ones in turn. Um, the first is about federalism or at what level of government, whether that's federal, state, local, uh, certain authorities should lie or policies should be promulgated. So what was different about the revised rules uh, take on who should be regulating the issues covered in the rule? And maybe why did you flag that as a point of concern? Yeah, so that's a great question. What we did is, you know, we, we read first the agency's um, you know, the beginning of the rule sort of sets the stage for the empirical arguments that they're going to make using, you know, quantitative methods for benefit cost analysis. And in that sort of setting the stage, what they did is they argued that in this case, um, you know, water quality is what they called a, quote, local public good. And that would suggest they're sort of relying on a piece of economic theory that says that in some cases, 
um, in an ideal world, one might want to decentralize environmental decision making, right, decisions about environmental regulation to entities like the states rather than the federal government. And you would do that in a case where you feel as though, right, it's really just, right, all of the effects of that, um, of that rule are going to be internalized within a state. And so it ought to be up to public decision makers within that state to make those choices and to set those standards. And that's a really important contribution in, you know, in economics to thinking about regulation. And there are many cases in which one can argue that that's the right level of regulation uh, for a particular kind of problem. Um, In this case, we, you know, cried foul because our concern was that in the 2015 rule, if you go back to the clean water rule, the Obama era rule, there was a whole kind of set of scientific analysis that was done around this question of the degree to which these relatively more isolated or ephemeral or kind of intermittent streams, you know, um, isolated wetlands were connected hydrologically, biologically, right, and other important ways to the downstream waters that are, you know, sort of clear cases, right? So if you had, you know, the Mississippi River, right, that's a clear case where it'd be hard to say that that does not fall under the, you know, sort of jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act, even given all of the court cases over time. But if you have a, you know, isolated wetland that's, you know, maybe kind of far from a, you know, small tributary of the Mississippi River, you know, that's where the questions arise, right? These are the resources that are in the gray area. And in the 2015 rule, there was what we felt pretty, you know, convincing scientific arguments that, um, that those waters are connected in important ways. And, and, um, the challenge is that the new rule, the Navigable Waters Protection Rule and the repeal, right, they don't really take that science head on. So that science was peer reviewed and then it had went through a review by the EPA Science Advisory Board with a standard kind of practice in regulatory rulemaking to avoid, again, this standard of being called arbitrary and capricious, right, making sure that you're following the best available science. And in the new rule, there's no evidence that's presented, you know, no real discussion of that being wrongheaded, right, in any um, specific way or ways. Um, but just, you know, more of a kind of declarative statement that, hey, in this, you know, in this context, these these waters are local public goods. And our sense was, gosh, if the science suggests that the connectivity is, is important and is real, then you can't really start the economics from the premise that it isn't. And so that's where, right, the, you know, science and economics have to work hand in hand in good benefit cost analysis for environmental regulation. And this was a case where we felt like you can't really, you know, unless you're going to present some convincing arguments to the contrary, the science, the best available science says that these things are connected and effects over here are going to cause downstream impacts. And then most importantly, state things like state boundaries typically um, ignore you know, things like watershed boundaries. And so if you're worried about downstream impacts, um, those could very, very likely be uh, impacts that move across um, state lines. And in fact, we even found uh, that the agency's arguments were not really internally consistent. So for example, they do a sort of special in-depth case study analysis in three different watersheds to try and demonstrate, um, you know, demonstrate their points. And, you know, for better or for worse, in all three of those cases, the watersheds that they pick, these fairly small watersheds that they pick, um, all cross multiple state lines. Um, So, you know, it's just, you know, our feeling was it's awfully hard to find cases where this is not going to be an important factor. Um, And in fact, the agencies themselves, I think, would have had a hard time. I think the the case study uh, question shows that they also had a hard time finding cases where that, um, that you know, those interstate impacts might not be important. 
And so that was, you know, for us, that was the challenge is the science suggesters connectivity. We don't see state lines in most cases following watershed boundary lines. And so you really can't argue, right, that this is one of those cases where um, the best place to regulate water quality is going to be at the state level. Mm -hmm. Well, and then you also build on that federalism discussion and by noting that the economic analysis for the navigable waters protection rule uh, suggests that if the federal government stops regulating certain bodies of water, states will step right in. So in other words, you know, we can take away that federal protection, but... um, even you know, even if we do that, it's going to be okay because the states are going to are going to pick up that mantle. Why are you skeptical? Why are you and your co-authors skeptical that that would in fact be the case? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. Um, you know, we kind of approached it objectively, saying, look, it, you know, what the agencies I think are trying to do, which is laudable, is to set up, you know, what is the right counterfactual for federal regulation of these waters, and that actually is a really important point in the sense that, um, you know, we always want to be careful when we're doing this kind of analysis not to give a, you know, a federal or any other kind of regulation credit for, you know, achievements or damages, right, that um, are really not caused by the regulation itself. And so I think that, you know, agencies set out to say, well, hey, if some states, you know, are, you know, if we repeal, you know, this kind of, you know, we, we take half of U.S. wetlands and 20% of U.S. streams out of federal jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act, you know, probably a lot of states are going to step in and protect those waters. Um, and so we want to account for that. So, there were several reasons to be skeptical of that. Um, the first actually just comes from EPA's own guidelines. And again, these are those guidelines for preparing economic analyses, the kind of, you know, recipe book or directions book that um, that the agencies are, are you know, meant to follow um, that represent best practices. And in those guidelines, it's fairly clear that, for example, say, you know, the navigable waters protection rules under consideration, and simultaneously there is a state you know, law under consideration in the state of California, let's say, we'll pick a state that often, you know, kind of um, tends to kind of lead the way, right, in terms of thinking about environmental regulation. Um, And that, that law passes. And, you know, it says that, this is completely made up, hypothetical, right? But imagine this happens and and it passes and it says that, hey, if, you know, this rule goes through and federal protection is removed, then California as a state, we're going to include all of those, you know, affected waters within our state jurisdiction. And so then, you know, under those conditions, um, you know, with a a state law that is truly scheduled, right, to to take place, then the agency's um, guidelines suggest that they should take that into account, right? So that would be to say that if, you know, you're adding up costs and benefits and you know California is going to to step in for sure, then you should, you know, you should not, you know, include um, the benefits of the regulation on, on that for that state. And that makes sense. But in this case, what the agencies did was quite different. It was extremely ambitious to the degree that we felt was speculative. And that is that they, for each state, they used a variety of, of criteria to try and predict what the states might do in response to the federal government removing the jurisdiction from these waters. And so that is exactly what the guidelines say not to do. So the first reason to be skeptical of that approach is is to suggest that um, it violates what are thought to be best practices for benefit cost analysis. It's just too speculative in that sense. And then a second reason to be skeptical is the sheer number of states um, that they you know, deemed to be likely to take on this role, you know, so by our count, it's 23 states in their kind of middle scenario, and then 31 states in their most optimistic scenario, that they view as uh, very likely to fully subsume, you know, this prior federal role. And if we look historically, you know, it's two reasons to worry about that. One is if we look historically at other times when, um, 
you know, th this may be fairly unprecedented in the in the sort of scope of, of, you know, the magnitude of the affected waters, the navigable water protection rule removes from federal jurisdiction. But if we look at there was a, the, a one of those Supreme Court cases that I mentioned was um, a case in 2006, in which the Supreme Court struck down what had been known as the migratory bird rule. And in that case, um, the EPA and the Army Corps had argued over time that they had jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act over isolated wetlands, even if they were not hydrologically connected, if they provided habitat for migratory bird species that did cross state lines. And that rule was thrown out. You know, so that rule was, was negated by this 2006 Supreme Court decision. And that meant that a lot of uh, formerly federal waters were known then to be, you know, sort of not not federal waters. And what we didn't see at that time, so that was about 20 years ago, um, and interestingly, you know, a few states moved to partially take over that former federal role for those affected wetlands, but here we are, you know, 20 plus years down the line, um, and we don't see, you know, certainly not 31 states, right, acting right away to take over that full federal role. So if we look at prior state behavior, that's one indicator, you know, sort of a second reason to be a little skeptical, you know, of this approach. And then I'd say the third reason to be skeptical is that not surprisingly, you know, what the agency does is that in the benefit cost analysis, once they predict which states are likely to take over that role, they then justify that by eliminating those states' benefits and costs from their national estimates, right? So that is, right, if we think 31 states are going to take over, then we're just not going to count any benefits and costs of the federal rule. And so that has a really big effect on the rule's bottom line. And we can show, and we do in the report, that, gosh, even if you just take one state, like the state of Florida, in the agency's estimates accounts for almost half of the kind of foregone benefits from wetlands depletion or, you know, the sort of disappearing wetlands acreage that one might predict would happen when the federal government removes its jurisdiction, but only accounts for about 10% of the avoided costs. And so that really skews just removing one state, right, by predicting that they're going to take over the federal role is highly favorable, right, to the Trump administration's, the, the navigable waters protection rule. And so our concern is that, hey, it's sketchy, right, doing this, it violates the best practices as defined by the agency itself. Um, it doesn't really jive with what we see from prior state behavior. And in addition, it has such a strong effect on the bottom line and is, right, you know, obviously we can't say that what the agency was doing was strategic, but it certainly it gives this sort of impression of a lack of objectivity um, and we just felt like gosh it's awfully hard to take those numbers seriously in those scenarios where they're dropping states um, because we're just you know we're quite concerned about how sensitive the results are to that and how speculative the you know decision to put states in one category or another seemed to be. Mm -hmm. So let me pivot quickly to the third point that you call out. Uh, and it does relate again to the cost benefit analysis, which is a very popular topic here on Resources Radio. <laughs> and in particular, um, let me just quote one piece, the methods used to estimate the foregone benefits from reducing CWA jurisdiction. So kind of wonky. Fortunately, we have a wonky <laughs> audience here at RFF, but help me interpret that if you yeah, can. Yeah, that's and great. Tell, me, tell us why it matters. Okay, so we love wonky um, we benefit do. cost folks. Um, <laughs> so this actually has been one of the higher profile pieces of this kind of batting back and forth of the rule between the two administrations. And I say that because, you know, some of my colleagues, in fact, some of the co-authors on our current report, um, have written before about this. And that is that 
the main set of what I'll call damages, what EPA and Army Corps call foregone benefits, right? So if, if you reduce the scope of federal jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act, then you're going to have some waters that are going to be negatively affected. And so this idea of kind of foregone benefits, you know, or damages from that would be that the primary damage that they look at is lost acreage of wetlands. And so the way that they handled this when they first repealed the Obama Clean Water Rule, um, when they kind of made their first attempt at that in 2017 um, and 2018, what they did was they just took the old rules benefit cost analysis, that is, they took the Obama era, you know, EPA and Army Corps analysis that had estimated, you know, the benefits of wetlands on a per acre basis. And they said, you know, those benefits are just too uncertain, so we'll just call it a zero. <laughs> and <laughs> right. that, that did not go over well. As you can imagine, our in our wonky, right, uh, you know, environmental economics benefit cost analysis community, <laughs> you know, people were up in arms and said, you know, there's yeah. a lot of uncertainty in all kinds of estimates that we make uh, when we do regulatory impact analysis, but you can't just, you know, you can't just zero something out. Yeah, um, and so there was some writing about that and people, you know, had, you know, wrote in, a lot, there was lots of public comment and so on. So they got a lot of pushback on that. And to their credit, when they finalized the repeal and then when they replaced it with the Navigable Waters Protection Rule, they took a very different approach. And um, generally, it's a much better approach, obviously, than just calling it a zero. Um, and what they did was they used something called a meta-analysis. And so that is where, you know, there are a lot of, you know, sort of smallish individual studies that have estimated the damages from lost wetlands or the converse of that benefits from, you know, kind of wetland improvements in the United States. But those are very time and place specific estimates. And so what a meta-analysis allows the researchers to do at the agency is it allows them to take as much information as they can collect about all of these independent studies that have been done in different parts of the United States in different times, and then kind of put them together in a statistical model that says, okay, this is a you know, how we might model a per unit, you know, say per acre, you know, um, lost wetland um, based on all of these different criteria that we have data on from all of these independent studies. So then you can use that model to predict what those losses would look like in places where we don't have extant studies, um, which is really most places, right? There, you know, if you sort of look at what we know, uh, you know, just standing under the streetlight, it's not very much compared to, um, you know, how wetlands might be lost or valued um, in the whole country. And so that's actually a laudable approach. And what's even more laudable about it is they contracted out to an environmental economist uh, who worked uh, with their team to do that study. It was peer reviewed. So it's published in a peer reviewed journal. That's always a good thing. Um, and then, you know, the challenge is then they, they use that meta analysis within the agency's, you know, um, economic analysis to then, you know, project these losses at the national scale. And so we, we really liked the, the meta-analysis that, that sort of, again, that movement from calling it a zero to the meta-analysis was a big improvement. Um, but then we had some concerns and questions about how they used the results from that meta-analysis to then project those national damages from, you know, potentially lost wetlands acreage. And those had to do with things like were they inclusive enough, you know, in the studies that they compiled, right, to generate the data that they're using in the meta-analysis? That that was one of our concerns. Um, were they as transparent as they could be in some of the assumptions that they made? And then very importantly, these arguments about federalism that they make all throughout the rule also affected how they used that meta-analysis. So, for example, when they projected the losses, 
of affected wetlands within different states, they assumed that those losses stopped at state borders. And again, you kind of have to do that, right, to be internally consistent if you're arguing up front, right, that these things are not connected and, right, there aren't these interstate impacts, then you can't very well model, you know, interstate impacts in your benefit valuation. But that is, you know, it's pretty questionable as, as far as um, best practices go in, in, um, in this kind of work. So just for example, again, think about those case studies that they picked and they've got these multi-state, you know, watersheds. Ooh, you know, if you're going to lose wetlands acreage in, um, you know, Maryland, can you assume that the effects are only going to be felt in Maryland, but aren't there, you know, recreators from D.C. and Virginia, right, and other places that might be birding or hunting or hiking or, right, doing something else um, in those areas? And, you know, that's where our skepticism, you know, kind of came in was how you go from this nice model, right, that was a big improvement to actually making these projections. And again, it's, I think, one of our biggest problems with that is it comes right back to this, you know, federalism argument that um, that these impacts stop at state boundaries. And we just know from, you know, long environmental economics literature that that's just not the case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like I've gotten such a good grounding in this conversation both, well, about the rules themselves, of course, but then also um, just about how the federal process, which can seem so opaque, actually has real consequences to sort of how rules are developed and um, and the considerations that go into us and, and why the rigor of the analysis really matters. So I, I just want to thank you for um, putting some context on that, too, because it's Again, about the rule itself, but then also about kind of the broader context in which these rules are developed. Yep. Um, so thanks. Yeah. Sure. And maybe just to, you know, kind of wrap up the the conversation about uh, the substance of the report and the rule itself, I do want to turn back to this question of uh, what what happens next? <laughs> Sheila? You know, oh, if there man. have been decades of kind of going back and forth and, and competing legal challenges. And yeah, it's a where great does question. an incoming Biden administration go from it, here? It's, it's hard. I mean, they, you know, they've indicated their intent to revisit all of this and that's mm-hmm. not surprising. But again, even if they hadn't, right, it's in, it's being litigated, right? So, so right. Right, it'll either be, right, someone in the administration or someone in the Congress or the courts, right, that are going to force some changes here. Um, I think, you know, in a way, this maybe this is going to be controversial, <laughs> but my own feeling is that, you know, if you look at the whole history of this, the reason this thing has been litigated so much, right, is because of a little bit of a lack of clarity within the, you know, the text of the Clean Water Act itself. And where did that come from? Well, that came from the Congress, right? That's a legislative thing, right? And like a lot of environmental regulations and, and, you know, concerns of all kinds, um, you know, over the past few decades, we seem to have moved from this place where things, you know, kind of happen legislatively to a place where things happen um, in terms of administrative rulemakings, like what we see here in both the Clean Water uh, Rule and the Navigable Waters Protection Rule. So, right, all you know, administrations of all stripes are are guilty of this. Um, And then, you know, then the debate over those rules takes place in the courts. And that's just a very different setting from, you know, if Congress decided, right, that it wanted to really clarify um, the language in the Clean Water Act, it could do that. Um, It's just that that seems unlikely. But I'm going to go ahead and put that out there as the first best solution, because it seems irresponsible somehow not to talk about the fact that, right, if the problem is coming from, you know, lack of clarity in the words of the Congress, then it might be useful for the legislative bodies to revisit that. 
given that that seems maybe a little bit unlikely, <laughs> or at least challenging, yes. <laughs> or at least mm-hmm. challenging, right? I think we're more likely to see this continued back and forth, right? And and it is complicated in the sense that you know we had a rule, the clean water rule, and it had an economic analysis, and then we had a repeal. And that had an economic analysis. Mm-hmm. And then we had a replacement. And that had an economic analysis. <laughs> right. And now we need to have, what, another repeal and replacement. And I unfortunately, I think that's probably where we're headed. Yeah. I think what we, we probably would see would be the Biden administration may be unlikely to try and defend the navigable waters protection rule in court um, under the cases that have currently been brought against it, right, that, that ongoing litigation, um, and then try to go back to the drawing board. Um, it's just, you know, as an economist and someone who is wonky about benefit cost analysis, the hard thing is to see when the agencies in a politically motivated way are changing, right, the the kind of bottom line of the analysis to match the, you know, the kind of flavor of the day in terms of what the particular interests of the, the administration that they're working under. That's very hard, right? It, you know, that over time, my, my concern is that, um, you know, as opposed to a legislative solution where the language is really clarified, and then we can just take that and do the best possible benefit cost analysis of a rule. Instead, we're sort of stuck fighting over, you know, how to do the benefit cost analysis. And that's not really the purpose of that tool, right? The purpose of that tool is to try and provide this objective input, um, you know, so that we can weigh um you know, apples to apples and oranges to oranges. So that's, you know, that's just my my wish, right, is that we could move from, you know, from that process, which has been so fraught, um, to a process where we get more clarity from the Congress and then and then use benefit cost analysis in a, in, in a, in a way that's more appropriate. Um, that would be great. But I, I, I don't think that's where we're headed. So yeah, yeah, well, I, I do think there's a lot of interesting conversation to be had about what happens with benefit cost analysis more generally moving forward. We just had another episode on resources radio on that topic. And I think we're going to try to hold some events on that at RFF. So uh, yeah, that's a, that's definitely a big picture conversation that I look forward to continuing with you and others. Uh, And if there's any good news in the fact that this topic is likely to be live for a while longer, (laughs) it's that maybe we'll get, you know, more good conversations out of it. I hope that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's true. I think over time we will sort all these things out. Oh, let's end on that very optimistic note, but also <laughs> with our, our regular feature, Top of the Stack. So, Sheila, let me let me just ask you to close. Um, what would you recommend to our listeners, content on this topic or uh, more broadly? Yeah, like a lot of people, I think I have recently shifted from reading way too much political news <laughs> and election-related stuff, right, online and elsewhere, to back toward, you know, maybe reading some novels and trying to enjoy my downtime a little bit more. So um, downtime, yeah, to the extent that we have that during the pandemic. Right. I was like, I'm sorry, what is that again? But yeah, anyway, yes. Well, we're teaching school and also doing our jobs. Yes. Um, But I recently read Bowl Away by Elizabeth McCracken. Mm -hmm. And I loved her book, um, A Giant's House, which I read a long time ago. And then um, she is actually, I noticed that she's visiting at the University of Texas. And I thought, oh, I should read something. I'll read her latest book. And it was really funny and um, quirky and kind of whimsical. And it was, um, it was fun. So I recommend that to people. Bowl Away by Elizabeth McCracken. Well, Sheila, thank you so much again for for explaining these things in such clear terms. I know it's complicated, but it's always helpful to have a guide, and you were a wonderful one. So thank you so much. Happy to do that, and thanks so much for the invitation. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org slash support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. 
Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.